Welcome back, everybody, to this next episode of the Latino Vote Podcast. Heading into the stretch here, just a few short weeks away uh, before the midterm elections, which will be obviously extraordinarily consequential. Love having you here, love having you with us. I am extremely excited today to introduce our guest, but Chuck bumped me out of the way and said, no, I'm gonna introduce our guest because he's that big of a guy on the scene. Um, and that's just Chuck's nature, that's just Chuck's way. So um, without further ado, uh, we want as much of his time as we possibly can. So Chuck, I'm gonna kick it over to you to kind of get this conversation started. I didn't think you would ever stop talking. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's amazing to be back here in Washington, DC. We are less than 40 something days to the elections and we have a really big show coming up today. My brother from another mother, John Favreau from Pod Save is here. He's just kicking off a new podcast called The Wilderness that I did listen to this week at the gym. Uh, the people who know and listen to some of my social medias know that that's my quiet time when I like to get all my political news in the morning in my headset. Mike don't really go to the gym that much. That's not surprising for those of you who've seen Mike in person, but we are really excited to have John here. John, thanks for joining us on the Latino Boat Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm glad that I'm your gym. Listen, that's a, that's Ooh, a real honor. The big deal. I keep listening to you and your team talk about security systems. And so I'm like, I think I may have to get a security system. As <laughs> you much want some as Simply I, Safe? Yeah, yeah so Simply Safe. I'm like, I don't know Madrid, but we ain't got no sponsors over here. And Simply Safe seems like something that they should do since most of our listeners are my friends who all have a criminal record anyhow. <laughs> well, tr truth be told, his gym is in his garage. So oh, yeah, okay. we go. he probably does need to step up some of that security. <laughs> so John, look, thank you for being here. Uh, every week we get different guests together to see what they're hearing, what they're seeing. Me and Mike go back and forth, as you can tell, me and Mike uh, have our own repertoire, if that's how you say that fancy word, on our different takes. Not only I'm a Democrat, he's a Republican. We talk about the Latino vote here. But the thing when I had really reached out to Kenna and to your team to say, I really want to get John on, it's because of your new podcast and the wilderness. And so you're going out, you're talking to people, you're hearing things on the ground. But let's start by telling everybody about the new podcast. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I've been doing this podcast called The Wilderness about the Democratic Party for, uh, this is the third season now. And for this season, uh, I wanted to go out and do some focus groups of voters. And then after each focus group, uh, sort of convene a panel of experts to talk about what we just heard in the focus group. And what I really wanted to focus on uh, this season is Biden voters, mostly Biden voters, um, who showed up, voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but aren't yet sure what they're going to do in 2022. Either they might vote for Republicans or they might stay home. And um, and the, the type of voter I really wanted to focus on as well is um, what I'm calling disconnected voters. So I think because we're all political junkies, um, sometimes we assume that uh, most voters know as much about politics as we do or, or follow the news as closely as we do. But in reality, you know, political scientists have looked at this and about only about 20 to 25 percent of Americans closely follow the news and closely follow politics and about 80 percent do not. Now, that doesn't mean that they're totally disconnected and have no idea what's going on in politics. Most of that 80 percent, they show up and vote. 
Um, but but I think that those of us who pay close attention to politics don't quite understand how other people and other voters, the majority of voters actually make decisions about politics. They usually don't come to the polls with these preconceived notions about politics. They're not as ideological as many of the people we know. They're not as partisan as many of the people that we know on either our side or the or the other side. So I wanted to talk to these voters. So I sat down with um, uh, in Virginia, sat down with some voters who had voted for Joe Biden and then voted for Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, in the 2021 gubernatorial race uh, in Pittsburgh. I sat down with some Democrats who voted for Biden and don't follow the news that closely at all in um, in uh, Orange County, California, Katie Porter's district. Uh, I sat down with um, Gen Z voters, a diverse group of Gen Z voters who voted for Biden for the first time in their lives and now aren't sure what they're going to do in Las Vegas. I sat down with um, working class Latino voters in Vegas and then in uh, Atlanta. I sat down with young black voters. Um, So those were my uh, those are my groups. Are you, you going to share with us what some of what you found or no? They got to tune into the podcast. You gotta, that's it. And that's all I got. That's all the time I have. But thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. In terms of common themes, um, man, uh, this isn't like telling people anything they don't know. But I always start the focus group asking, like, what are the issues that matter most to you that affect you most personally? And cost of living, inflation, every single group without fail. Young voters, Latino voters, black voters, voters who switch to Republicans, they all bring up. And it's interesting, specifically housing, uh, which is something that you don't hear as much from politicians in either party. Um, But the cost of living, you know, they don't they don't some of them were talking about inflation, but uh, just about every group. And especially this was true in Vegas and it was true in Orange County. um, Their biggest concern, their biggest fear is. Uh, I'm not going to have a place to live of my own or rents going up too fast, or I don't think I'm ever going to be able to move out with my, uh, move out of my parents' house. So you hear that a lot. Um, I did these focus groups throughout the spring and summer, uh, f- starting from the time that the Dobbs decision was leaked um, through when the Dobbs decision came down. And afterwards, uh, abortion came up in every single group um, without, without prompting. Um, gun violence came up a few times uh, as, as a big issue. So uh, you had a lot of concerns about cost of living, abortion, gun violence. And I would say, look, there was not a lot of love for the Republican Party in a lot of these focus groups, which is not terribly surprising since most of them were all Biden voters. Um, But there was not a lot of love for the Democratic Party either. (laughs) And it wasn't it's funny, the the views of of Biden and the Democrats in Congress, that they weren't as harsh as you'd hear from Republicans, but they were like, you know, the, the views of Joe Biden was like, nice guy. Uh, I think he's trying, but I, nothing's fi- things aren't fixed. Things aren't fixed in my life. And that's the real problem. And I think that all the politicians in D.C. are the same. And, and I can see the Democrats trying and I can see the Republicans maybe are too extreme. You heard that about Republicans a lot, but it doesn't seem like anyone's trying hard enough. And so politics doesn't really feel connected to my life. And uh, it's too divisive and everyone's yelling at each other. And so I, I try not to pay attention too much. That's like the general theme of uh, of what I heard from most of these voters. What does that mean, John, for the potential of, as one of the architects here of, of the Obama coalition, mm-hmm. what, what, is that, what does that mean? How does that tie in? Maybe talk a little bit about what you all put together in 2008 and, and where the country's heading and what the prospects are for a kind of a more permanent majority for the Democratic Party. Sure. Well, so, you know, there was this view back in the 2000s, and I think it, it took off with our campaign in 2008, that a 
diversifying America um, would automatically or eventually um, uh, benefit the Democratic Party, right? Because as uh, the country was becoming more diverse, specifically, obviously, with um, uh, more Latino voters um, were, were, you know, were aging into the electorate, that um, that would help the Democratic Party. And, you know, I think that was true up through maybe, you know, in 2020, when Trump started doing, you know, Trump did better with Latinos in, in 2020 than he did in 2016. And I do think, and I noticed this in these focus groups, that you are seeing more of an educational divide, obviously the educational divide between um, white college voters and white non-college voters has been quite stark for some time now. I think you're starting to see some of that creep in into the Latino vote and uh, even with some younger black men. Um, I, I, in, in these groups, sort of the younger black voters and the younger Latino voters um, were probably some of the most disgusted and disappointed with politics in general. And I wouldn't say that they're necessarily like they're drifting towards the Republican Party, but I would say they're drifting away from the Democratic Party. And so I do think that um, to your question about how Democrats sort of keep the Obama coalition together, I do. I mean, my, you know, my takeaway from these groups is for, for, for most voters, for people who don't spend their lives paying attention to politics, like issues that are urgent and immediate in their lives are, are most important, which sounds obvious, but is not obvious to a lot of politicians. And mostly that's economic issues. But I would add, you know, when when the you know right to get uh, access to abortion is taken away, that matters to people. Um, you heard with you know people talk about climate change not in an abstract sense, but like I live in Nevada and we're having water issues because of the drought, right? And so fires like, in California, fires in California, fires in California, right? And then um, or someone be like in Atlanta, a lot about crime, a lot about gun violence uh, from these voters. And so issues that people are seeing every day, potholes, people talk about roads <laughs> that, that aren't fixed. Those are the kind of issues that matter. And, and in every group, I also ask, what issues do you think get too much attention in politics and too much attention in the media? And I heard in a couple groups, um, these January 6th hearings, uh, get too much and they, you know, they don't like what happened. A lot of them hold, most of them hold Trump responsible. They're scared that it could happen again but it's not something they want to see on TV all the time. Or they'll just say the debate between politicians gets too much attention on TV. There's too much yelling on TV about politicians and there's not enough about issues that I care about. So that's, that's sort of what I heard from, uh, from all these groups. Now for all of you folks listening at home who come onto this podcast to hear over 60 years of Latino campaign experience. And for those of you who've never believed these two old Mexicans, we have a famous white guy on here who just has backed up everything we've been saying for the last 12 podcasts. So if you needed some white validation, you just got it because John, what you have described is what me and Mike have been saying on this podcast. Now this podcast is a little different. Guess what? Me and Mike don't pontificate about elections. People actually pay us money to run campaigns for them. Right. I, and, I, and I see my privilege, John. I, thank you for having me on your podcast before with Podsave and getting to talk about the Latino vote. We try to get under the hood here and talk about what we're seeing in states because the Latino vote 
will have a bigger impact on this particular election than it ever has before. And I'll make the case to you here. And then going forward from here, it's just going to get exponentially more important. And here's the big things we've been talking about. A, the Senate map overlaps in states with lots of Latinos, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. That's a no brainer. But for the first time in American history, there are 15 marginal congressional districts that have over 40% Latino population. That has never happened before. As you know, as an old head like us, they normally took all the Latinos, they put them in super democratic districts in Phoenix, LA, San Antonio, Miami, New York, and we stayed in our little safe places. Well, guess what? The population now has overgrown those safe seats. So in Orange County, where you're talking about, in New Mexico, in the Valley of Texas, where the Republicans have made that more marginal seats down there, in Colorado with the new seat, it's a 50-50 seat. You have all these Latinos who now we're talking to, trying to figure out how we get them, me to vote for Democrats, Mike to get them to vote for Republicans. And we hear what you're talking about. And there's two things that you said that really stuck out to me in what you've been hearing that Mike Madrid wrote a New York Times op-ed about that we've talked about here that I wrote a book about two summers ago during COVID after the Bernie campaign, which was blue collar workers, working class folks that are becoming more and more of that class of folks are Latinos, people of color, multicultural people. And the second to your point, is the education piece. Mike Madrid loves to talk about white overeducated folks going, moving to the uh, Democratic Party and Latinos, working class folks moving more. Was it because of Donald Trump? We have that debate here all the time to the Republican Party. And we fought over this, these people in the middle that you just went and talked to. The average age of a Latino in America is about 28. Most of their parents came here or their grandparents came here, though you have this young group of people who've assimilated in American culture to a certain extent, still very much Latino, very much Hispanic and care about them. So what we've been talking about is how that issue set will lead in what's going to happen now and which party is getting it right, which party is getting it wrong. So I think what you've been hearing and this new and the newest season of this podcast is really over a layering with what the Latino vote is here. So is there anything that you learned that stuck out with you with what you saw with Latinos in Las Vegas or maybe in Georgia or wherever you may have had some that, that kind of contradicted or agrees with what we're saying about this education split and this blue collar split? Well, so um, in the Vegas group, uh, and I would say this was mostly men, but a, a few women as well. And I would say from 20s to 40s uh, Latinos um, and um, mostly without college degree. Um, and then they all classified themselves as moderates. Um, I asked which party do you think is better for working people? And uh, the first guy said, uh, well, I, I used to think Democrats, but now I think Republicans. And uh, then one other guy said, "Well, no, I think it depends on your income. I think if you're if you're rich, you like we think Republicans are better. If not, you think Democrats are better." Then the next guy said, "I think Republicans." And then it was split back and forth in the group until the last woman said, "I can't tell the difference." <laughs> wow. So it was pretty. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted to hear as a Democrat. But um, yeah, and I just it's it's and I sort of dug in a little bit and there was a feeling that politicians make a lot of promises. They go to Washington and they don't deliver uh, and they don't fix anything. And, um, you know, there was, there's a little bit of, you know, I got to like, you know, Obamacare gave benefits to people who weren't us, right? Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's what Democrats do. They give benefits to people who, uh, who aren't working, right? So there was a little bit of that in there. 
but mostly it was, um, you know, they, it's all talk from both parties and, and no action. And, and that's the problem. So it was very interesting. It was very interesting on that. And it was interesting, their views of immigration as well, because I got into that. Um, and there you also have, you know, at least the group I was talking to, very much aligned with the Democrats on the issue of um, making sure that undocumented people who are already here have a pathway to citizenship. But then start talking about the border, talking about security, and they sounded a lot more like Republicans. Um, and what I was saying after the group, to me, it sounded more like where President Obama was when we were in the White House with border security, but also pathway to citizenship. Now, I think the Democratic Party and, um, and the Republican Party are sort of, and partly because of Donald Trump and the Republican Party becoming so extreme on this issue, are much, much further apart on this issue than ever before. Um, but you, you, you got the sense from this group that they didn't they didn't believe that anyone in government really uh, knew, aligned with them on immigration or had any idea how to fix the problem. And there was just a general disgust that the, um, that the system is broken and no one can fix it. And it's not fair right now. Are you hopeful for the country, John? I mean, is, I mean I'm not going to say it's like 2008, right, where there was a lot of optimism about what America could be and realizing our full potential. And then, of course, we've gone through this really rough patch but you're out talking to voters. You're, you're, you're talking to the voters that make decisions. And obviously, they've got concerns. The economy's rough. There's no question about it. It's, it's top of mind. But one is, are, are you, I wonder if you are, are hopeful about where we're going, because you, you've been on the arc of this trajectory. You, you've made historic decisions when you were in a campaign environment. And, and you know, how would you be messaging in, into this environment? Do the, are the American people hopeful still? Well, that's a, I'm always hopeful. Uh, I'm an Obama guy through and through. So I can't, it's in my, it's in my, uh, it's in my DNA now. <laughs> I'll never not be hopeful, but I will say that I'm more concerned than I have been uh, probably any time that I've been in politics. Though I try to remind myself, you know, two, two years ago, um, the country came together and, uh, and stopped Donald Trump. And uh, it was in the middle of a pandemic. It was uh, against an incumbent who used and abused all the power of his office to stay in office. Um, and despite all that, um, uh, people showed up and and we won. And so I think that so I'm, I am hopeful about the American people. I don't know if they are they are all hopeful as well, as well. But one thing that struck me is that, you know, when you when you have these conversations with folks, like the, my message to Democrats, to Democratic activists and organizers and and uh, and and people who pay attention to politics, people who are very online as Democrats is like all of these voters are gettable. All the voters I talk to are gettable. There was no one who was like, I am voting for Donald Trump or I am a I am a diehard Republican. I'm never thinking about voting for Democrat. They're all gettable. But you have to have you have to be willing to engage in difficult conversations with people and you have to be willing to see every voter as a persuasion target, right? There's this thing in the Democratic Party where people are like, well, 
all these swing voters, forget about them. We're just going to turn out the base. Yeah. And they act like turning out the base is like flipping a light switch. And then, and then the, the base turns out, right? Or they're like, well, we just got to register new voters. And they act like registering new voters is like the easiest thing in the world. It's like, well, no, the pool of people who don't vote in this country also tend to be less ideological, less partisan. Um, they tend to be younger and non-white, but they're also like, they, they don't like politics very much. And, and to get them to register, to vote is just is going to also require very difficult conversations as well. And it's going to require conversations and you're going to find out that people don't align with you on every issue and that people's views about politics are complicated. And that doesn't mean they don't have strong opinions. A lot of the voters I talk to have very strong opinions on, on certain issues, but those views often conflict and don't line up neatly with each party or each ideology. And we have to be willing to be okay with that and try to build sort of the biggest coalition possible, um, especially because we're in a, you know, anti-counter-majoritarian system right now. We got the Electoral College, we got the Senate, we got gerrymanders, and, and that's all unfair. But in that system, the only way to win, the only way to stave off Trumpism is to build the biggest coalition possible. And that requires uh, alliances with people who don't necessarily agree with everything that we agree with. Let me follow up on that and, and go deeper on that question. Mm -hmm. And this is what I want to talk about is that you mentioned that people are having a tough time. You and Mike mentioned that the economy, this, or the inflation, that, and this is what people are talking about, but there's no doubt that our economy after COVID, thank God for Joe Biden is roaring. Mm -hmm. uh, it's roaring so much that the fed has now raised interest rates an incredible amount in the last two times that they've raised interest rates, you know, a point and a half combined between the 2.75s. And so, and for those of you who are listening to this podcast, the political professionals, the wonks and the nerds, we always talk about, look, John used to write speeches for Barack Obama. A lot of those communication that you saw coming was John and a team of people. It wasn't just John, there are a lot of people doing this work. So communication is what my question is about. Because I write TV ads for a living. I write mm -hmm. mail for a living. That's what people pay me to do besides uh, look pretty on a podcast. And my point, based off of what you just saw in focus groups, if you were writing ads today for the Democrats to try to talk to those people that you just sat down with all summer long, knowing that the choice thing just happened towards the end of what you were doing and you started seeing that show up. Here's what concerns me, John, because that's why I want your answer on this question, because I'm a professional in this business. And that is that I see the same small little group of posters and the same small little group of media consultants who are my friends, who are your friends, who a lot, most of them are amazing consultants who write the same polling questions and who run the same commercial. But if you could make any commercial to talk to those people, what would be your advice today to run to get to those people that are soft D's? Will they be back in an off year election? It's a great question. And I, uh, I completely agree with you. It's one of my great frustrations that um, we cannot seem to uh, sort of, we can't, we, the, the ads are just not creative. They're not, you know, and like the question is, and I think it's the answer is different for different audiences and different groups of people, but like, how do you break through a very noisy, crowded media environment right now? And I don't think you do that with like, exactly the same cookie cutter ads with the same voice and the same music and the set like it just I think people are consuming so much information now from so many different sources that it's just it's just noise it's just noise um but I look I think Democrats have had this debate over this last year like 
how much do we talk about Joe Biden's accomplishments and the Democratic accomplishments versus um, trying to empathize with sort of the pain and the struggle that people are still feeling? And I don't know that like that sort of barometer is the right way to think about it. I think the the message needs to be which party is actually fighting for you? What Which party is actually going to run through a brick wall for you, for what you care about uh, to make sure that like, you know, there's there's a bunch of, you know, uh, liberal policy wonks in the party that are like, oh, you can't really blame inflation on corporations and, and, and corporate gouging and price gouging, and all this kind of stuff, because that's not exactly what, what what's contributing to inflation. It's like, yeah, I get all that. But it's also true that corporations are making record profits right now, that CEO pay is through the fucking roof. OK, at a time when prices are sky high for a lot of Americans. And it's not just about prices. It's about costs. Right. It's 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 not why are prices so high. It's why do you feel so broke right now? And it's the cost of housing and it's the cost of education and it's child care and it's health care. So it's all these things combined. It's not just about inflation. That's not how people process this. How they process it is I can't afford to make it right. I can't move out of my parents house. I can't get by. And I want to know who in Washington is going to actually fight for me. And I know I want to know who they're going to go after. Are they going to go after the people who seem to be standing in my way? Are they going to go after the people who are profiting uh, hand over fist after this pandemic? Or, um, or are they just going to sit there and talk a lot? And I think you kind of need that fighting spirit. It's interesting when I was in, um, in Pittsburgh, uh, I talked about the Senate race there. And I had never heard reviews for a candidate as good as I heard about John Fetterman. And it was interesting because even the people, there was a couple voters in that group who had voted for Trump in 16 and then Biden in 20. And even those, one of those voters is like, I don't know if I'm going to vote for him. I don't know if I, if I, if I really like him, but I respect him. I respect him a lot. I like that he, that he uh, says what he believes, that he uh, didn't forget where he came from, that he didn't just go move into the governor's, ma- you know, like it's this sort of anti-politics politician, I think is, and as, as you know, Chuck, it's Bernie fits that mold as well. Um, that's, that's appealing to people because they have lost faith in most of our institutions, politics, media, big business, and they want to know who was going to sort of fight to hold those institutions accountable and make sure they work. Because if they can't find people who are willing and able to make the institutions work, there is a chance they're going to go with the demagogue like Trump who promises to tear those institutions down. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. Uh, and I don't, I don't look, I don't want to put you in an awkward position of making predictions, but who, who's going to win the midterms? <laughs> I think it's, I think we're, look, I think we are, we are right back to where we were in, in 16 and 18 and 20. Like, I, I just think that the electorate is so close and so neatly divided in a lot of these, in a lot of these swing states that I think we're in like one to 2% range in, yeah. in so many of these Senate races, right? Like I, I sort of feel pretty good about Fennerman in Pennsylvania and Shapiro there. I, um, I feel pretty good about Mark Kelly in Arizona. Um, I worry about Nevada. <laughs> Uh, I think George is going to be super, super close in the Senate race. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I could see this. I could see this thing going either way, but I don't think it's going to be a big swing in either direction. I think the, the, the question that we don't know is like, will enough 18 voters who were first time Democrats, first time voters in 18 show up 
to counteract maybe the 2014 Republican voters that showed up in that midterm um, or, you know, so like what it's hard to tell what the I mean, you know, you never know what the turnout's going to be. But um, yeah, I, I could see I think it's I, I actually don't know. I think it's going to be pretty close. We've seen an, an incredible amount of money being spent again mm. this election cycle. You know, I, I, I go back to when we were working. I was working for Ann Richards in Texas when I had a beeper and I had paper lists, right? Like I, I always say that to kind of romanticize about what it was like. And then folks come on this show because they see me and Mike as, as brown folks who've done this a long time to ask, how do we feel about Democrats' chance on a Latino vote, this and that? And, and, and we love to get into the weeds of that. Something that struck me in the last few months is the difference that the national Democrats are taking on when it comes to people of color, mainly Latino voters, because they become such a swingy part of the winning number. Uh, and then the campaigns on the ground at the congressional level, mainly in the state house race. And this is the question I post to you because Crook Media does a lot of stuff uh, to try to get the vote out, register vote, vote rider, all the things, right? And I'm a senior advisor to them in full disclosure here. I help try to get, you know, get folks IDs so they can vote. Um, the national Democrats and, and John, we haven't talked about this, but there has been, they took it very serious when Latinos spiked for Republicans in Miami and the Texas Valley, right? So you had the Senate majority packs, the DSCC, you had the DNC, you had folks calling Chuck Rocha, calling other folks going, okay, we got to do something a little bit different here. Something's going on. Let's get ahead of this thing. And so what you've seen now is in Nevada, Atlanta, not Atlanta, actually in Atlanta and Phoenix, Democrats have outspent Republicans 16 to one in Spanish language advertising for the last six months in big Senate states, right? So that mm -hmm. tells me Chuck Schumer, his chief, other folks were like, holy shit, we better get our shit together. We're gonna get our clocks clean because there's a lot of brown people living in states that we gotta win. So they throw money at the problem. And I think that a certain amount of money when it's that much money helps your problem, right? It just, people say all the time, well, why does people run so many... TV ads in uh, Philadelphia suburbs on Philadelphia TV that's so expensive. I'm like, because it works. Now, it, and they wouldn't do it. Now they make a lot of money off it, but it works if you spend a lot of money to talk to a lot of people. Our question is, are you spending that showing up in a multifaceted media environment where folks aren't just watching network TV? We can have that debate later. That's not my question. This is the Mike Madrid long windup, John. Wow, that was a windup right there. I'm not still done. I'm still winding. No Stay question. with me. Stay with no me. question. I, I was like trying to figure I out like how to it. answer this. There's like eight different ways it could go. The question is, because I want to leave back to Crook, because this is the long one, is that, but on the ground, we lose that. On the ground, there's not that cultural competency of Spanish or bilingual communications. There's not one Latino campaign manager uh, of any congressional race in the top 50. And we, I mean, you've talked about the consulting problem where there's not any black or brown consultants. The work that y'all are doing on the ground I think is a centerpiece of what most people are trying to do to offset that. There's groups on the ground working and there's groups like Crook or groups like pick somebody, people for the American way, indivisible, whoever. Tell me some of the good work that you're seeing happening in states that people should know about that are, are, that are doing work on the ground that as you've come across them in the work that you've doing with the, with the new wilderness or with Podsafe. Yeah. I mean, look, we, you know, so at Cricket Media, we uh, have Vote Save America which uh, is, you know, sort of an offshoot where we've been trying to not only raise money for candidates, but also um, sort of, uh, you know, have organizers and volunteers uh, sign up. And I think what, what, what I try to do, because I think what we're trying to sort of like break down the, the barriers between, I feel like we have all these consultants 
in pollsters and all these smart folks in the Democratic Party um, who are working on races and who are talking to each other. And then there's like the media, which is a mess, right? And then there's like Democrats and organizers and people who want to volunteer and help. And all the stuff that the smart folks are hearing and finding in their polls and their research and talking to each other about on conference calls, somehow that message is not getting to the volunteers and the organizers um, who are on the ground. And not just like the professional organizers that have been doing it forever, they're figuring it out. But like folks who, and this is our main audience, is like Trump wins in 2016 and people are like, I haven't really paid much attention to politics. Maybe I vote once in a while, but now I want to get involved. And what do I do? How do I get involved? Who's going to help me? And so we've tried to be there for those people. And, you know, in Vote Save America had about 400,000 volunteers in the, um, uh, that we signed up in the you 2020 can't just race. You can't past that. 400,000 volunteers in, in how <laughs> yeah. many states? Every state? In, in all the swing states. In all the swing states. Wow. Uh, in all the, yeah, we, and um, because it was the pandemic, you know, we, you know, people could sign up from home and they could pick a region and they could go in there. And so um, we had all these volunteers. We, we held trainings. We brought, you know, strategists and, and, and organizers in to sort of train these volunteers. And then they would do phone banks and text banks and, and, and write postcards and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what we try to do, and we do this on Pod Save America and all the different podcasts too, is, is talk about, try to translate the democratic message um, and, and not like, and this is what I'm trying to do with the wilderness too. It's not like, Hey, this is the message that works. Right. Because as you know, there is no one message that works. It depends on where you are and who you're talking to, but try to talk about politics in an accessible way um, that sort of translates the, the pollster speak that we get from the strategists exactly. and the pollsters in a party into like human speak <laughs> where when you're knocking on a door or you're talking to someone on a phone, like what's, what's the best way to talk to them. And so that's, that's what we were trying to do is not just like get people involved in politics, but also sort of arm them with the information, the best information that we can find so that when you go out and you're having conversations with voters, uh, you can be as, uh, as persuasive as possible. Do you think we're missing as a professional political class, we're missing this swath of voters that you're targeting or are we just getting lazy and kind of using fear and anger to try and, and hope that that gets us the turnout levels that we need? Or is there is there any sort of a vision on either side uh, where, where you're seeing people a little bit more aspirationally reach out and say, this is what we can do. This is who we can be. This is how we can come together. Is, 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 are you seeing anything like that? And this is uh, this is getting into a, a whole nother podcast that I do. I host called Offline, which is about the, how the Internet's breaking our brains. But um, I think that that social media has made us a little bit lazier and also has given us some blinders in that we know how people who um, think like us think about politics. We know, like, if I, I'm a Democrat, I know how all the Democrats online think about politics because I read it all the time. So I, everyone who's like a super partisan Democrat, who's a liberal, I know exactly how they think about politics. I also know how super partisan and ideological Republicans think about politics because they, I see them online all day long. But that gives you the all day long scrolling through Twitter or Facebook or wherever you are, that gives you the illusion that all there is it's like super ideological Republicans and super ideological Democrats and that there's no one in between. And then there's this thought that like there's a mythical swing voter or that that everyone else is in the middle on their mushy centrists or moderates, or whatever. And that's just not reality. We know from you guys know from the, the, the electorate is 
most people in the electorate don't pay attention to politics and they do have strong views about politics, but they don't necessarily line up on either side. And I think as political professionals and also people who are just, you know, uh, activist Democrats online or activist Republicans online, I think we fool ourselves into thinking that it is this like uh, this, this, this struggle between two sides and there's, there's, there's no, there's very few voters in between when in reality, there's a huge group of people that we have to talk to and persuade if we want to win. And I do think that like actual campaigns on the ground get this. I talk to organizers in uh, every episode and it's interesting because the organizers are always the ones who are like, you got to keep knocking on doors. You got to have hard conversations. You got to be willing to sit down with people who don't agree with you. People who have practiced politics, who have been on the ground organizing, they get it. But the folks who just spend most of their lives online <laughs> and like that's their political activism, they have a harder time. Like when I tweeted that I was doing a series where I had, you know, I talked to Biden voters who haven't made up their mind yet. The replies I got on Twitter were like, why are you even bothering with those people? Why are we yeah. spending time with those people? Let's forget about them. And I'm like, no, no, that's the electorate. <laughs> that's right. most people. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's mainly to that audience of folks who are who are sort of terminally online about politics um, that we got to branch out because, you know, we need all hands on deck here. I want to uh, conclude some of this thought on something upbeat instead of how broken the internet is, which is mind boggling to me because I think it really is, is, is that we all talk about the, we all live through Donald Trump. We've all lived through all the things that we all complain about as professionals of trying to make America a better democracy and have more people participating in that. I want to talk about what's making you hopeful. And we talked about it on the podcast with uh, Nancy Pelosi and the leadership of the House Caucus being the average age in their late 70s, if not early 80s. People look at me about Bernie, who's 80, the president who's 80 or fixed to be 80. Like there's all these old Democrats who've been in charge for a long time. So there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change soon. And, and, and none of us are in our 20s anymore. Uh, I was with Alejandro Maxwell Frost uh, mm. last week from Orlando, and I talked. Me and Mike talked about it on the last podcast. Him, Greg Kassar from Austin, uh, Delia Ramirez from Chicago, Summer Lee from Pittsburgh, a young black woman. Mm -hmm. Like these are all people of color who all are going to be sworn in in Congress in January. Who are all under thirty-five. Who are all super progressives who make me as an old Mexican who's done this a long time, who's kind of screaming at people to get off my lawn here lately, uh, that I've, it gives me hope that, that there's a next, next generation that's better than me, that's going to do this differently, I hope, than I do. As you travel around, tell me about people you've met that give you hope uh, in your travels of the next generation of, of the folks who should be leading our party and our movement. Look, I mean, you know, we used to do, um, before the pandemic, we did all these live shows and we just finished a, a, a spate of live shows over the last several months uh, across the country, which was just so wonderful getting back on the road and actually talking to people, it's just like getting out of the studio and, and talking to people. And I'm always like most inspired when I talk to the people who come to those shows. And I, I can remember before the pandemic, we did a show in, in Denver. Uh, this was in 2018, right before the midterms. And we usually do Q and A. Um, at the end of uh, at the end of the show, and a young woman stood up, and she said, um, "I drove here from Utah um, for this show, and the reason I did is I'm a dreamer, and I'm worried 
um, about what will happen to me. And I wanted to be around people who cared and who were willing to fight. And I just wanted to say, you know, thank you to everyone who came here. And before she could even finish, like everyone in the audience stood up and gave her like a standing ovation. It was this great moment. And it is this like, I think, you know, we can very easily be siloed and technology allows that. And, and the pandemic has caused that as well over the last two years. But um, especially for Democrats and progressives, you know, the purpose of our party and where our ideology leads us is to sort of work together to build this multiracial democracy. And to do that, you have to be around people and you have to you have to have these conversations with people and you have to come together and you have to empathize with people. And I do get a lot of hope from the fact that the younger generation um, that's coming up now is sort of more willing to do that and, and wants to be in community and wants to take care of each other and wants to look out for each other. Um, so that um, when I when I meet when I meet folks who are in their 20s and 30s uh, at our shows, um, that's that's what comes to mind. Well, I appreciate that, John. Mike, you have anything else? No, I just want to say this was special. We appreciate your time here. Again, I've been a long, long time fan of your work. It's good to kind of be able to have a conversation with you after uh, after watching what you guys uh, have done. And um, just thank you for the work that you're doing and appreciate everything that you're doing to make America a better place, truly. Well, thank you both, uh, Mike and Chuck. This was, a real, uh, this was a real treat. Thanks for having me on. It was nice talking to you both. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. We were super stoked to have John Favreau joining us today. A great conversation. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to be a Patreon member to listen to Chuck and Mike After Dark. That's going to be coming up. And then also don't forget, again, about the website, latinos.vote. That's where you can get all of our information. Mike, what else is on latinos.vote this week? We got some new op-eds or something coming up? Got a lot of actually stories covering regional polling data, a lot of deep dives into Nevada, Arizona, uh, polling outs today from the Houston Chronicle about the um, uh, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Greg Abbott campaign. Um, fascinating things, those shifts happening there. The beautiful part about the website is being able to get it all in one location. Um, it's there for you. It's easy. You can, you can uh, reference old podcast episodes and take a look at some of the opinion pieces that we're getting. Um, from some of the thought leaders in the Latino space, the Latino community. It's kind of designed to be a one-stop shop so that you can get everything you need to know about the critical vote that is going to determine who controls Congress, who controls the Senate, and ultimately who's going to best position either party for that 270 map in 2024. Thanks for listening to the Latino Vote Podcast. Don't forget to share with your friends and neighbors. I don't even care if you share it with your uh, old crazy uncle as long as he subscribes and listens because I'm going to piss him off or Mike's going to piss him off. Don't forget, come back, join us next week. And for now, we're out of here with the Latino Vote Podcast. <laughs>